This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A team of biohackers is developing the first open source protocol to produce insulin simply and economically. The hope is that their work will serve as the basis for generic production of insulin and provide a foundation for continued research into improved versions of the life-saving biologic. We spoke to Anthony DeFranco, co-founder of the Open Insulin Project and a board member of Counterculture Labs, about the work the challenges they're encountering, and whether the DIY movement can teach the corporate world anything about cost-effective innovation. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your open insulin project, your work with the biohacking group Counterculture Labs in Oakland, and, and the very real need driving your project. Eli Lilly introduced the first insulin product in 1923 in the modern biotechnology era. Human insulin was the first biotech therapeutic to come to market in 1982. But 33 years later, there's limited sources for insulin, no generic or biosimilars on the market. How big a need is there? Well, we're still trying to do the background research to get a better quantitative hold on the magnitude of the problem, um, but just by rough estimates of what the population in need might be based on what the income level is in certain regions of the world and what insulin costs there, you know, we still haven't quite worked it out to the point where we're confident in it, but we think it's in the millions. What, what's in the millions? The number of people? Um, yeah, yeah, precisely just, you know, the number of people who need insulin but can't afford it. Well, how, how big a consequence is it that there are limited sources of supply for insulin from a public health perspective? Well, we found, we found a study done in America by a wing of the NIH in the 90s that found that it was already an issue in, in, in monetary terms. It was in the billions of dollars in magnitude and, you know, again, involved hundreds of thousands or millions of people who were not getting the treatment they needed, and then this resulted in excess medical costs in the billions, and that's just looking at the financial side of things. Behind the financial figures, there's the reality that people are suffering really severe complications and dying, you know, amputations of the extremities, blindness, kidney damage, cardiovascular disease. You've got a rather personal connection to the project. You have type 1 diabetes. Could you tell us how that helped hatch the idea? The way I ended up getting involved in insulin production was uh, that I was part of Counterculture Labs, and 
in that context, I met Ryan Bethancourt, who now runs the uh, Indie Bio Biotech Incubator. We have been talking for a long time about this idea of like a desktop insulin factory or like a desktop factory that could make whatever drug you wanted. And this is kind of the the aspirational goal for a lot of the biotech community is that basically you would just have something that's kind of analogous to, to a 3D printer, but for uh, biological items instead of like devices and products. So you would, you know, just put in the design of the the, the biologic that you wanted and it would work out a plan and it had, would have all of the the reagents and, you know, library of the techniques you needed and it would just like synthesize it up. And that's kind of the, the sci-fi dream that we'd eventually like to make a reality. But we didn't really see, uh, you know, we were both interested in this and we were both interested in doing whatever we could to support progress on this, but we didn't really see a direct way to contribute. As that conversation evolved over the years, we made more connections with people who were doing biochemistry and synthetic biology work day in and day out. And uh, eventually we made the acquaintance of Isaac Yonemoto, who had done academic research specifically on insulin production and on making new variants of insulin. So he knew all of the the latest techniques that were relevant to insulin synthesis and had a lot of firsthand experience with them. And he's a generally a very accomplished biochemist besides. So he was able to actually fill us in on the, the concrete information we needed to come up with a workable plan for synthesizing insulin that would be quite possibly a lot simpler, a lot lower cost than the protocols that are currently in use in industry. And then at that point, we saw that we had, you know, something that was really potentially important that we could contribute. And that's when it really took off. And that was during this past summer. You mentioned Counterculture Labs. You're a board member over there. For listeners who may not be familiar with Counterculture Labs, or, or the greater citizen scientist movement. Can can you explain what it is, what goes on there, who you might find working in there? Um, Counterculture Labs is about, uh, I don't know, maybe three years old now, actually. it's It's been uh, quite a, a journey. And it's, uh, as you mentioned, a citizen science organization. So what that really means is, in a very uh, in very mundane terms, is that we've got, we've got a community space that we rent in Oakland, called the Omni Commons. We have a room in there, and we're right next door to a hacker space called Suter Room. And the way we uh, were founded was that a bunch of people who were associated with BioCurious down in the South Bay and with Suter Room in Oakland got interested in making a kind of hybrid of the two, something that would be focused more on citizen science and a bit of an emphasis on synthetic biology. and something that would also be run as a hackerspace and which would also embrace uh, the ideals of serving the community and opening up scientific knowledge to access and participation for for everyone in the community and make it possible for everyone to get involved in advancing science and benefiting from it. How well so, equipped is the lab and, and what would I find in there compared to, say, an academic or corporate lab? Um, well, for the most part, we really run things on a shoestring budget, and 
I think all every single piece of equipment we have to date is surplus from somewhere else. We're fortunate that there's a pretty vibrant biotech industry around here that generates a lot of surplus. So that gives us access to most of what we might need or want to do our work. A lot of it, uh, we end up needing to repair ourselves. But once that's done, the end result is pretty close to a fairly well-equipped academic lab. It's a little bit messier, <laughs> a little bit, a lot more informal, I would say, but still manage to get it all working in the end. Well, biologics by their nature are large, complex molecules, but within that world, how does insulin compare in complexity to other protein therapeutics? Is this low-hanging fruit for the DIY movement? Um, actually, I would I would not call it low-hanging fruit. So now bear in mind, I'm not really an expert in any of the relevant fields. Uh, the most work I really did in this vein was that one summer or a couple summers during high school, it took uh, me a couple summers to fail in doing protein crystallography, which, which again is not low hanging fruit. That's one of the most finicky things around to get right. So, but that was kind of my crash course in all of these techniques and ideas. But I'm definitely not someone who has, has really worked on it in a sustained way over the course of years. So that's just a caveat in my perspective, but, so I'm just going to tell you what I'm told, basically, which is that insulin is actually a really a strange thing to work with and to try to make. It's a lot smaller than most proteins, and that makes uh, detecting it and purifying it a little bit challenging. The, the process that the body goes through to cut and fold it is uh, very complex, and it uses proteases that aren't really in standard use. So that makes it necessary to look into other ways of getting the cutting and folding done, which is what we're focusing on. And the industrial protocols, I think one of them that's in common use very closely follows what happens in the human body, and another one uses a comparably complex sequence of steps that was, you know, one of the first ones that was developed in the 70s that was kind of the first thing that anyone got working reasonably well, and that's what they stuck with. So where we see the opportunity is to take advantage of more recent developments and draw on a broader range of techniques to, to kind of update the synthesis for 2015 and, you know, reduce the complexity to the point where, you know, a community lab like ours can, can have a reasonable shot at doing it. According to the latest estimate, it takes $2.6 billion to take a drug from discovery to market. I know you're finishing up a crowdfunding round for this project. What's it going to cost you? Fortunately, we are not going to try to take a drug to market. We're going to just focus on the science and the engineering challenges, which is a much simpler, much less costly proposition. That means that we don't have to worry about fully figuring out the purification and the formulation and the dose standardization. And we don't have to worry about regulatory compliance. We don't have to do possibly clinical studies or anything like that. And that's where quite a lot of this cost comes from. We're making something that has already been made and is already well understood. And we're not, at least so far, we're not considering 
doing the work of, of bringing it to market ourselves. We're hoping that a generic manufacturer will will be interested in it if it actually does, you know, if our work does result in significant simplifications and cost reductions. So for the work that we have scoped out for us right now, it's, again, still a rough estimate because there's going to be some trial and error involved in actually investigating the possibilities that we've come up with by looking at the literature. But we think it's going to be on the order of a few hundred thousand dollars in a few years instead of, you know, millions or billions of dollars. And then to take a generic drug to the market, that would kind of start in the millions and go up from there. Well, is is that the end vision here to, to get something that would, would wind up as a generic drug or is the idea more of a, an on-demand in-home insulin production? Well, even even to say that what we're doing will lead directly to a generic drug is is uh, is, is you know uh, a little bit uh, aspirational. So first, we need to make sure that we've got the protocol worked out and debugged, and then we can evaluate what we've actually come up with. That's our hope, and that's our motivation. It's nothing that we can promise yet because the science isn't done yet, and the results aren't in. Now, it would be. I think, as I mentioned before, this prospect of like a desktop factory for whatever you need is a really tantalizing one. That's something where I think even, you know, even if we had all the resources in the world, we'd still have to do a lot of research on, on developing technology to get us there. So what I think we want to do now is just be part of a broader movement in that direction and contribute what we can. And, you know, once we're done with this, maybe we'll we'll reevaluate where the technology has come in the intervening years. And that might be our next project, you know, with with any luck. What does this say about the future of biotechnology? And, and do you see the DIY world teaching the, the corporate world anything about cost effective innovation? Um, I would hope so. So a lot of a lot of people have have come to us from the corporate world and we've had some interesting conversations about how how things work on the other side and what the incentives are there and you know again this is just kind of my own personal impression but and you know I've tried my best to be informed by the relevant scholarship but I'm certainly no expert in this but the impression I get that is that you know innovation is is probably only a secondary concern and if there's if there's a market that's already really profitable like the market for diabetes treatments, then, you know, an innovation stands just as much of a chance of making that less profitable than it does more. So, and this is, a, this is a really uh, widespread frustration among diabetics is that the, the, the state of the art treatment has pretty much gotten to a point where there are a lot of daily consumable supplies that you need to buy and they're all pretty expensive and they all have very high markups and they're all, you know, protected by patents, and that helps to keep the markup even higher, and we've just kind of been stuck there for many years. So to me, it seems like the institutions don't have the right incentives to actually pursue innovation very aggressively. It's certainly not that they don't have the resources, um, and and this is evident in, in uh, you know, the, the daily experience of, of what it is to be a diabetic. So. Um, you know, what I, what I hope we do, you know, we do do if we're successful is 
that we show that innovation doesn't take billions of dollars. It just takes a little bit of determination and skill. And maybe innovation will, maybe that will spark a wave of innovation within the institutions, or maybe it will uh, continue to inspire innovation outside of the institutions in the DIY community. Either way, I think that would be great. Really, what I think what I think we're interested in, in in this project and in the broader movement is is in just taking advantage of the potential that technology gives us to make people's lives better, and that doesn't always happen within the systems of incentives that exist. So we've just you know decided to get right to the point and do things as directly as possible. And you're you're completing a, a crowdfunding round right now. Where are you at on that, and what's the timetable, and how can people contribute if they'd like? Um, yeah, so we just have two more days left. It's going to close Friday uh, around noon, I believe. That's December fourth. Um, so, yes, December fourth. So, and we've we've just gotten the budget to do the the first steps before the cutting and folding, which is just to to make the pro-insulin constructs. Um, so the cutting and folding is really the bulk of the work, and that's what we need to focus on. And we've just crossed over about $15,000, I think, right now. Our current goal is 25000 which is you know, still far short of what we need to complete the whole project, but it should let us um, get some progress in on the first steps, and then we can resume raising funds. So if you want to contribute now and your contributions would be uh, most welcome, you can find us on experiment.com. The project is just called Open Insulin. should be easy to find. Anthony DeFranco, co-founder of the Open Insulin Project and a board member of Counterculture Labs. Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.